Hey, welcome to the RSP cast. We're, this is an edition of Scout Talk with Russ Landy. Russ Landy is back, the head of national scouting for the Montreal Alouettes, former NFL scout with the Rams, with the Browns. Man, it's always a pleasure to get a chance to reconvene and do this with you, and we're going to be doing this more throughout the year. I'm excited, man. Anytime Matt and I get to sort of throw the ball around, I guess is the way to say it, even though we're not physically doing anything. Um, it's a blast because as I've told Matt many times, I'm sure the people who've heard us before have heard me say there's no one in media I respect more who's grinding and watching film and really knows football the way that Matt does. Matt's truly a savant, and uh, I love doing this with you, Matt. Well, man, it's, it's an honor, and I really appreciate that. And, you know, Russ was one of the first in this industry that I know that I looked up to in terms of you know what he did on also on the media side with GM Jr. and you know and that was definitely an influence on a lot of the work that I did and if if you haven't gotten your 2022 rookie scouting portfolio you can head over to mattwaldman.com you can download the complete pre-draft post-draft package for 2195 it's a combined 1124 pages of scouting reports draft history if you're a fantasy guy <laughs> ADP data football knowledge you know, fantasy players, media, former NFL players, and personnel people in in the leagues in Division One football have routinely told me that they've they've learned things about skilled players that they found worthwhile from it, and it leads them to think of concepts or ideas and maybe in a different way. And you know, of course, I'm doing projections too. If you're in the fantasy space, so I do complete projections, and it's going to be available on Excel beginning in in August. So if you want to, you know, make tweaks or updates or notes rather than using the PDF you can go to mattwaldman.com and you can order that. And within 24 hours of ordering, I send you access information for um, the latest update for download. And it gives you both a long build and short build um, tiered ranking set in addition to team by team projections for every player that I think could conceivably contribute at the skill positions. Um, you know, and that's updated regularly throughout the year. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a great deal as a, as a package, you know, for under 50 bucks, which you can't even see a movie these days with your family for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course we've, you know, at the RSP, we've been able to donate over $55,000 to darkness to light over the past. Um, I think it's been about, 10 years yeah past 10 years um an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children um through training programs um, for individuals organizations it's a great organization and if you just want to donate to them go to d to l.org um they're a great outfit um that is doing you know doing the lord's work you know so um you know definitely appreciate you guys who've been read um readers of it and customers of it and you know and i know that we have you know, raving fans with it. So we're going to get started with with all that out of the way. Christopher Brown, was that good enough for you, my friend? You know, he's my he's my ad enforcer. So, um, <laughs> so we're going to get started with the football. And one of the things that I really wanted to talk about with Russ is that, um, especially with his experience in the league and experience in these rooms and doing and working on these processes, is a podcast I heard before the draft with um, Robert Mays, and he had um, with the Athletic, and it was with former GM Rick Spielman of the Vikings, and then Dante Scarnecchia, um, you know, off the the coach for um, the New England Patriots, the venerable coach there. And there were there were two things that really jumped out to me that that I want to talk about. The first was processing of information um recently russ you know they asked him they asked spielman about um any new testing or types of work that's being done in the scouting um industry in terms of what they found valuable and he said what the vikings over in recent years in the past probably five to seven years if not longer he talked about testing of the processing speed of athletes because his commentary was that, you know, especially with, say, players in the middle of the field. He said the closer you got to the middle of the field, whether it was quarterback, center, and running back, he said the closer you were in the middle of the field, the more important was that you were able to process information 
efficiently, you know, fast and accurately. And he said that oftentimes interviews didn't cut it. So especially with quarterbacks, they'd come in and you'd always hear the media talking about how, you know, it could be Kenny Pickett or Desmond Ritter aced the interview section of the uh, uh, part of the the um, visit, and they 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 talk like they're coaches on the field. Their grasp of the offensive football is like a, a coach on the field, and you hear that like year after year after year. Then the lights come on, and they have to make these decisions, as Rick Spielman said, within one point four seconds, you know, or two point two seconds within, you know. You know, maybe that you could add 1.4 before the snap, 2.2 after the snap, and and that combination. He said, and when that happens, the lights are on and nobody's home, and then that becomes a big problem. And so they're they really have focused on this and found value not only for quarterbacks, but I found it interesting for running backs because as your bailiwick, and I want to hear about this as you know quarterbacks and how you've been scouting that it dovetails with that. It's the same thing for me with running backs as well. Because to me, you know, we see running backs as these primitive cavemen who operate totally on instinct. And I've been kind of more on the line of like, these guys have to process a lot of information and they just have to look like it's operating at the speed of instinct. So wherever I went with that, I would love to hear (laughs) your, you know, your commentary about some of your thoughts on this. Well, I'm going to start at sort of the opposite side is when I first got in the business, one of the things that I was told was, when you look at defensive players, the closer they get to the ball, the more trouble they have because the reactions have to be instantaneous and add to the fact that it's a lot more violent and physical the closer they get. So when I first got in, I started noticing, yeah, if you look at safeties who try to play linebacker, corners who move to safety, it usually becomes a bad situation. And then I started looking at offense, and you talk about the running backs and the quarterbacks. And see, with running backs, I know we want to say it's quote-unquote intelligence, But I do think a lot of it's sort of natural reactionary, sort of how do their instincts react with their natural sort of sense. And I notice that a lot of time with that running back, who some of the guys you can see, they see the spot to go to or they understand where to go. But when they their head and their body stop, their feet are like a split second behind hitting and going where certain guys, it's almost as soon as their eyes like their head, you can almost see not that you can see it because they have helmets on, but you almost can sense their eyes getting wide that their foot's already hitting the ground and they're cutting. Yeah. And to me, those are the things you can't get too caught up in with a running back. Like when he's got an outside stretch and, oh, he puts a foot in the ground and just hits it at full speed. Yeah. Well, that's great. But a lot of college running backs can do that. Right. How are they when they get the ball and someone flashes in front of them and they instantly have to move the guys that go banging into the pile and then have to reset their feet. That's sort of an indication that they may not now occasionally everybody it's going to happen to do that's part of football. But the guys were over and over, they're not able to anticipate and see and react. There's no question that that with quarterbacks, I mean, I think I've told the story. There was a quarterback that got drafted in the first round, didn't end up making it. And what teams often do with quarterbacks is they'll put a reel together of every mistake their final year, their college season. And with this quarterback, they said, hey, we're going to put up a reel of every mistake you made your final year. And he literally knew the plays. He knew before they pressed play, he was like, oh, so you're going to start with this third down play from this game. And he went through every one, knew exactly the error, exactly what the coverage had been, what mistake had been made, and was telling him this literally from memory. So you know he's smart. You know he gets it. He can do all the interview. But literally he got in the NFL and he just couldn't process quick enough. So there's no doubt that figuring out whether it's intelligence, emotional learning, reactionary learning, everything combined, whomever can figure that out and come up with the magic quote unquote test or pill or whatever it may be, will become the most successful football executive in the history of the (laughs) NFL. Because as we both talk about all the time, you can have running backs, you can have receivers. If the cat getting the ball ain't good, you got no chance. So figuring out that side with him is huge, but also for centers. A lot of time you interview these guys and you want to put them under center and people don't realize it's not like it was 30 years ago where the center just lines up and says, there's the mic and just forgets about everything else. And he goes with the protection called the huddle. He literally gets, when he comes out of the huddle, he knows the play call and he knows the recommended protection, but he also knows based on his playbook and everything, there's four other or five other protections they may check to based on not only where the mic is when he walks to the line, But if the mic jumps, if they have to switch out the mic and he has to adjust the mic, 
you can't have a center who may be intelligent, but can't instantly process the ability to make that instant adjustment to, uh Oh, 42 jumped out. Now he's over the the defensive end and 36 is walking down from safety. We're going to readjust, make 36 the mic. Hey, everybody split, split, get your guys, make sure, you know, 36 is now the mic. And he has to be able to tell them what call we're going from slide 24 to power 18. He's got to be able to do it like that. So yeah, there's no doubt figuring out that reactionary learning, reactionary quickness is it's one of the keys to all scouting Yeah. because you just think about it. Your biggest, I'm mean, not your biggest, but one of your great strengths is receivers. And 20 years ago, receiver just had to walk out and say, Oh, it's zone. I'm running this. Oh, it's man. I'm running this. Now, sometimes there's seven, eight route combinations. And a lot of the time he's out there, the shuffle of the defense is last second. There's four seconds on the play clock. He just instantly be able to, okay, they shuffled to this. I know in our playbook, we shuffled to this and now I'm running a dig instead of whatever it may have been. A lot of guys don't have that. Yeah. And it's so vital. I, 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 I don't, I can't even put in words enough how hard it is to figure that out through the interview process, talking to coaches, all those different things. And that's why teams have tried this HRT, which is the emotional intelligence test. They're really trying to figure that part out. There's even more where they're doing reactionary stuff where they're putting guys sort of in a room and asking them to touch things when things move on the, the screen, just to get a feel for how quickly the brain moves. So all these things combined, it's so vital because if you, and I'm not saying that the people who did it 20 years ago didn't understand this. It's just, it's become more and more and more vital now because the game is so different and so instantaneous than it was 20 years ago. And it's hard to figure out the technology to how to test that. That's the biggest thing. I mean, and when you talk about receivers, I mean, I think this also contributes to the mystery that I know some people had talked to some scouts who were like, you know, it was around the year of Equinemius St. Brown when they, when he was getting touted as a top guy. And it was because he was that typical size, speed, athlete type of outside player. And, you know, you hear a lot of media saying, well, this was the era of when the Des Bryant type, type of clones slid out of the draft or slid down in the draft and they were no longer valued. And I think that contributes to the idea of that you couldn't just be a matchup athlete on the outside. You had to be more than that. And that, and that coincided with offenses being more multiple, as you mentioned, you know, to respond to what defenses are doing. And you think of the rise of the slot receivers or the players who could be inside outside guys are, you know, Justin Jefferson is a great example of that or a Michael Thomas. And they came around during that, you know, these are guys that are, that are you know prominent now or thomas came around around that point where saint brown was like touted but it was like really he could only do that one thing on the outside and then you think about tight ends and tight ends is such a tight end is such a difficult position not only from all the things you talked about with what a center has to do and what linemen have to do as blockers they have to do that as blockers to an extent but then they also have to operate like slot receivers and be on the same page with their quarterback with all those different adjustments which makes it hard and i'll go back to running back because one of the things that i i talked about on my site this week was i was profiling old misses zach evans and texas's Bijan robinson two excellent running back prospects likely to come out this year and I was showing a play where Bijan Robinson, you know, gets a positive gain, but he's making a cutback on a play where the right side of the line collapses inside and he bends it back out, but he bends it too far back out and ends up having to stop his feet and cut back in and he gets hit by the linebacker coming down the line from the backside. And I was noting, I said, you know, if you look at a tape of a guy like Raheem Mostert, who we're not comparing Mostert and Bijan Robinson as as players, but just this one aspect of their game, you know, Mostert does a great job of hugging blocks. Like he understood conceptually that when you cut back, stay on that collapsed side of the block so that you just, even if you scrape against their backs a little bit, you're avoiding the, the, the lineman coming down the line and you create more space and you may get more of a downhill push because you might avoid the backside pursuit totally. And Robinson needs to learn that because I've noticed this on a few of his runs where he's a hard one cut guy with great burst out of that cut, but he doesn't know how to really bend that run. And where I looked at Zach Evans, Zach Evans like totally understands how to do this. And so, and it's an example to me of like, 
where what happens here with processing is I, I agree with that there it has to be done at the speed of instinct and I think one of the things that we notice is that players who may have only run one type of blocking scheme or a certain selected number of blocking schemes are unfamiliar with others and when though they're exposed to those early in their college years they can get away with it because they're still gaining positive yards and so they think they're doing fine and then if they get critiqued about it the 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 wise ones or the mature ones will go to their coach and say hey i was i was critiqued about this what do you think about that and the coach will say yeah absolutely this is something you can do better it's just that with our rules in place how much time are we going to spend on that when you're gaining you you get you're you're keeping the playbook open for us and moving us down the field um i'm not going to that i can't prioritize that with you but in the nfl yeah, you're going to have to get better at this. And I've had I've had players come back and tell me that from critiques I've given um, and say that they've gone one in particular that I can mention now is CJ Procise. I've talked about him in the past where his coach at Notre Dame, he showed his coach at Notre Dame me talking about him running zone schemes because he was more familiar with gap and some of the things that he wasn't doing in terms of pressing blocks. And he took it to his coach and his coach said, exactly. You know, and then we and his brother came to me and helped me, asked me to help him hook him up with a running back coach who. So it was like that kind of thing. I think it's sometimes knowledge of you getting familiar enough and learning what you're, you know, getting familiar with footwork, getting familiar with certain concepts within the blocking scheme and drilling it enough so that it becomes that reaction. And being good yep. at that reaction, but it's like it's like I talk about is learning licks. Like you learn licks as a, a musician, and it's not like when 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 the tempo is like this fast, you're not thinking, well, I'm gonna play this no, pentatonic exactly. over a chord. You're actually just you're hearing it and reacting. But you've spent like hours, like I'm doing at night, like practicing stuff really slow until I can play it really fast, and then it's it's just like talking or a language and. For them, it's learning that aspect of those languages. And I and somewhere, I mean, I have no, you're right. Like the answer of how to test that and value that is like That's the million part. dollar question. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I think the, the, the only thing I can think is I, I believe it's going to come down to how we watch film, at least on one aspect of it. Like how we watch film to see what they do and then how we... Um, and how they are drilled and and looking at maybe how they asking questions about how they work on things if they work on those things like can they drill it and i'm sure there's guys you know we know that there are guys who didn't spend time since middle school or high school working on footwork drills and still just get it but you know we will probably name one or two guys over like every five-year period who are that way um but i think it could be helpful in that regard to to look at it from that perspective i think somewhere down the line someone's going to say we need to look at the film we need to ask them about how they practice and develop and maybe we need to put them through some things and see how they do that and do it in a different way than the tried and true of just saying, how fast can they do this particular exercise? You know, well, so. And, and I would add two things. Firstly, the point you make about guys who maybe have been less exposed based on scheme, that makes it even harder. Yeah. Because then you're trying to say, okay, is it fair to judge his reactionary, <clears throat> excuse me, quickness based on something he's been asked to do only since he got to the pros or only since he was a senior in college? Yeah. See, so I wonder, here's the debate, because every NFL team now, everybody's got a chip in their shoulders, right? <laughs> At some point, is there a chip in the helmet, a chip in the shoulders, and a chip maybe in the hip pads or, or shoes, yeah. and then the chips of all the defenders? You can start to see at what point does the blocker create the hole? How is he riding? Where is his head? And when do his, does his lower body react to when his head does? Yeah. And will there be a way to write an algorithm that can figure that out to compare the holes? And that would help you figure out, I think, for any position, you could figure out what those metrics are. But writing that algorithm, that to me is where you could take huge advantage of. Is there some way to, to <clears throat> I guess, make it less subjective than more objective? Yeah. I all, all I know is I'm sure Ed McCaffrey is glad that all these chips weren't in his... Uh... 
no in his doubt, uniform right? because he couldn't even wear pads. So like, right? you know, he'd probably be paranoid about those little light things, even, you know, every, every ounce mattered to him. But, uh, and, and I just want to add one other thing, Matt. Sure. Is the other thing is that as you get into the more nitty gritty of intelligence and things like that, uh, like in, in terms of reaction or intelligence, I also think it's going to lend to the really good coaches are going to gain an advantage because some of the teams that may not have great coaches, even if they, and they figure out how to get a great read on reactionary intelligence. So those teams and organizations may say, Oh, nope, that player doesn't have it. That player. Some of the other teams may say, yeah, he may be lacking a little, but what if we tweak our scheme? What if we make our scheme a little easier? I mean, just to me, you're sitting in the city with maybe the best example in the whole NFL, which is Cordero Patterson. Yeah. This is a guy that came out and everybody questioned, not so much that he was a good football player, a good worker, or any of that. It was just he didn't always react consistently, whether it was at receiver or as a running back. But if you look at what I think it's Coach Smith has done with the Falcons and yeah. putting him in positions to accentuate his strengths, and it looks like this kid's going to be maybe not ever a guy that catches 1,600 yards of receiving ball or passes and runs for a thousand yards, but he's going to be a dynamic, integral part of their offense and special teams because of how they figured it out. So while I think this will be beneficial for everybody long-term in terms of getting better at figuring out that reactionary intelligence, I also think it could separate the good coaches from the poor ones because the good ones will get some bargains and guys that may not grade out as so quote-unquote intelligent. And I think that's an absolutely great point because, yeah, he – when you you know gap running is hit it fast hit it hard hit that crease outside zone to an extent is kind of the bridge to that um like if you're you know if you're a good gap runner or you were an outside zone runner in college but not very good at processing um but you can hit things hard and you're speedy outside zone works in in a lot of cases and that's kind of the bridge towards zone running from guys who are be who might be better suited to gap and then you know, another example of that and a smart coach is Kyle Shanahan. You look at Eli Mitchell. I've watched enough Eli Mitchell, and I know that my readers will say, well, you like Trey Sermon so much, and he didn't work out there so far, you know, that you're just banging on Eli Mitchell. But it's more from my but – the, but the real thing is is that when I look at Mitchell, he is that example of a runner. They love him because they call him Drano. He hits the hole so hard. But you have to understand it's one of those deals where when you have – the one of the best blocking tight ends in the world, one of the best left tackles in the world, one of the best fullbacks in the world, and you can set an edge as block on the perimeter and run toss and outside zone. Are you going to pick a back like Sermon, who is far more nuanced and patient? And in your scheme, you may look at it and go, he's got a lot of problems because he he's 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 trying to look for our cutback too soon he's not hitting this hole fast enough he's slow to the hole and then not fast enough through it for our taste whereas eli mitchell is kind of more like a rocket strapped to his hind parts and and doesn't even think about that stuff and his footwork isn't nuanced in that way but they love that he hits the hole so fast at full speed and every they time. every time and when you have not everyone has that trio of outside options and then Debo Samuel who can block or or Ayuk who can <laughs> do block too wants. do yeah. whatever he wants and you have all of that that it, that's a perfect example of saying well our scheme fits that we don't need the guy who's going to be analytical and think and and really set all this up we don't need a Devonta Freeman we need a high-end Tevin Coleman you know yep. and that's what Kyle Shanahan was looking for all this time. That's why he kept bringing Coleman and Jarek McKinnon into San Francisco and then having Mostert, who Mostert actually is a nuanced back, um, but just happens to be unbelievably speedy too. He happens to be the best of both. He just couldn't stay healthy. Breda was another example of that too. But, you know, you look at a guy like Sermon, he's going to have to wind up somewhere where they run more inside and they expect him to be more of a diagnoser. And it's not going to ever work in San Francisco for him as long as Shanahan's the coach. And But that's a great example of the, the flip side of that being, you know, where you go, we have these assets. We don't need 
the running back to do the bulk of this. We just need him to like hit it. That's yeah, it. Have that natural reaction to just there's a hole and go. And yeah. I always thought to me when I watched old coach Shanahan and now Kyle Shanahan's offenses, the one guy that I always thought that's been in the NFL now six, seven years, I always thought Melvin Gordon yeah. in that offense could be special because he, I always thought, was not a particularly instinctive guy, but once he saw it, he yeah. was a rocket ship and he could run. Yes. He was like, a, a, he was almost, it, it looked like almost like a gazelle or a robot or something because the stride was exactly the same every time and it was at full speed within two steps. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And David Johnson would have been fun. Oh, yeah. You know, in that as well. I mean, because he needed Chris to, he needed Chris to help him out for that first year. Um, you know, in terms of some of the some of the concepts of getting a little bit better, being more patient. But man, yeah, when it came to like those types of plays, yeah, he would have fit great. So it's a terrific point about Patterson and them figuring it out. And you know, and to give the Patriots a little bit of credit, they kind of they they kind of opened the door for that. Just yes. saying, you know, we'll use them on toss, we'll use them in the eye, we'll use them in these situations, and you could see the success. But they had enough players who were versatile enough to do other things. So. So that's the first part of that. The second part, Skarnecchia, because Dante Skarnecchia was on this show. And this I also found fascinating, and I want your point of view on it from your experiences, because, you know, Robert Mays interviewed him. It was this whole, you know, from a journalist standpoint, from my experiences, like this is terrific inside baseball entertainment stuff. You know, it's like, so what do you do, Dante? What was your role with the Patriots in terms of scouting for offensive linemen? Because you're the offensive line guru. You're the guy that, you, you know, consulted with a lot of that even they brought you back to consult you know before some drafts what was the process here and he described the process as being you know around january around the all-star games he'd start getting some tape and start seeing tape for the first time on some of these prospects that the scouts liked from their their initial work legwork and then he would look at them and he had his own way of looking at them and kind of you know had his own kind of process that he went through and he'd go through that process and then he'd hand that stuff back to Josh McDaniels and say, here's the guys I like. Here's the guys that I think would be good for us showing it to Josh and then Bill Belichick. And, you know, you'd look at that and, and they'd ask more detailed questions about, you know, technique and things like that, that he was, that was different, that he differed on. And he'd say, I always tell scouts this, or I tell them that. And I don't remember the details of what exactly it was that he would say that, that he valued or valued less. But, um, what struck me was more from a management process standpoint, because I was thinking if I'm managing a group of scouts, I'm looking at this and going, why didn't for all these years, why didn't we just get Dante Scarnecchia to like show, you know, basically write down what it is that he did. And we figure out a way to work with him when we had the time to like create a way of looking at these players in the way Dante does for our scouts so that we're already doing that work and we're doing it with all the players as opposed to waiting for him to get back to us on it. And especially if he disagrees with our staff about what he wants with some of these things, why can't we like train our folks to do what he wants earlier so that we can do this more widespread. So for me, from a process standpoint, I thought there was an opportunity there that even as such a good organization as the Patriots and, you know, as good of the minds that, 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 that are in that room, you know, I thought to me, this was an opportunity that maybe was where, you know, a little more management experience from an operations standpoint could have been helpful to them, um, especially with their football minds that they have in place. Well, there's no doubt, and, and it, I think it really there's sort of two separate uh, ways that you, that I look at it is in most organizations, you'd look at it and say, oh, it really doesn't make a lot of sense for the scouts to not really have a clear, concise picture as to what the coach coaches want at each and every position. Now, I will say in certain organizations where they're coach-driven and the coaches are really selecting the players and the scouts are not as involved once they get the information on the road, like the Patriots, like the 49ers, um, it's not shocking because the reality is that in those situations, a lot of those scouts go out, they evaluate the players, and they literally just say, here's the top for an O-line coach. Maybe it's the top, I don't know, 70 O-linemen that we saw on the road that we think will be good Patriots. And then they just hand it off, and they aren't that much more involved in the process. So it may not be as efficient as you would think it would be, but if it's a coach-driven thing, I can sort of understand it. 
I think where that would be of major weakness, and I've seen it firsthand in some organizations, which is where the coaches and the scouts are really working together in the meetings. They're all heavily involved in who's selected. And if the coaches don't tell the scouts exactly what they want position by position, we end up giving the list because every team does in December or right before in early January, you give each position coach a list of the top 20, 30, 50 players at his position. And you'll highlight, Hey, here are the players going to the East West. Here are the players going to the senior bowl. Here are the players going to the combine because you want the coach to evaluate all of them before they see them live because you don't want their first view to be non-film, not football related or not game related. Um, so that, that's great. You get them the list. But the problem is if you're giving them a list just off, hey, I went and looked at all the linebackers. I didn't have anything to work from in terms of what you're looking for. That's where you run the risk of, hey, I'm giving you a list of 50, but there's eight others that probably would have been higher up on this list. I'm not even giving you had I known this. And, and the example I would mention is I know when we were at the Browns, Butch Davis had our linebacker coach and our D coordinator sit down with us and go position by position along the defense and the same with the offense. So that we would know, hey, for our mic, this is what we're looking for. And the perfect example of sort of what, how important it is, at one point we said, hey, we want that strong point of attack, Mike linebacker, 235 to 250, who can take on blocks, who can control the middle, who can make plays. And we're, we're going to trust that guy to fit what we need more than a guy who's in that 220 to 230 range who may be faster and a better athlete but it's always going to be either trying to outrun the block to get to the play or cut behind the block because in our scheme, we need someone to take on that block. So it's really important for me as a scout when I go on the road to know what I'm looking for. Um, I think that's one of the beautiful things. And I will say, I think that's one of the biggest reasons that the Steelers have been successful for so long is the scouts, whether they're older ones or even the younger guys that have been there eight or 10 years and sort of grown up in the system, they know what they're looking for at every spot, whether it's offense or defense, because they basically run the same scheme. Obviously, it's been tweaked and adjusted as the NFL has changed, but the parameters, the basic traits of the scheme for each position have been the same. So they know when they go to whatever school it is and they're looking at either a, a down defensive lineman who's 240 or an edge outside linebacker who's 240, and they're trying to project them as a 34 outside rush guy in that T.J. Watt mold, they know the traits that are being looked for from T.J. Watt's side. They know the traits that are being looked for for the other outside linebacker. And they can literally say, well, this guy's a really good college player. He's a really good athlete, this and this, but he doesn't fit T.J.'s traits. He doesn't fit this guy's traits. So even though he might play in the league, the odds of him succeeding in our building are low. And that, to me, is one of the things you, you would love to see the owners understand, because I think if the owners understood that, they'd realize that patience sometimes is more important than the quick fix. And like I look at it, and, and this is not in any way meant to knock anybody, but if you took Kevin Colbert and you took Mike Tomlin and put them in different situations, you don't know how successful they'd be, because... Going to Pittsburgh allowed them to say, okay, here's the schemes that have been used here before. We're going to allow you guys some time to get into this, and we're going to be patient as you grow into being a head coach and you grow into being a GM. But we know how to scout already to find these players. And we have a scheme here. And over time, both of you are going to continue to grow as people, and we have the support system there. And it gave them a chance to become what they are, which is great at what they do. And I think that patience that the Steelers have shown over the years has really helped them to be a much better team and organization, whereas other teams that every three or four years are changing, it makes it hard for even good scouts to find players because if you go from a, a power 3-4 or 5-2, whatever you want to call it, scheme, where you're trying to be big and strong and physical at the point of attack, and three years later you're bringing in a guy who wants to be undersized and shooting gaps and all that, Almost all the players on defense are not a great fit. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they can't be kept. I mean, I spoke to a team that's been in and out of the playoffs like every, I don't know, third year, the past decade. And one of their new coaches is a defensive coordinator. And he literally felt that there were two players on the defense that, quote unquote, fit his scheme. And it's like, A, yeah. that, that's, what, that's what's tough when you bring in new coaches all the time. It's like, 
you have one or two guys you're happy with and you want to blow all the rest of it up, it's like when you keep continuity, I think oftentimes that leads to more success than maybe firing the good coach to go get what may be a slightly better coach because that better coach is going to take two or three or four years to implement his thoughts, whereas the good coach is already two or three years into it and maybe a year or two from boom, everything blossoms and you're winning. So, yeah, I I think the Patriots may be the exception because they're such a coach-driven organization that you can get away with what they're doing. But most teams, if me, if my scouting department does not know exactly what the coaches want at every position, I think you're just, it's a disaster waiting to happen. I, I, that is such a great point overall. And I laugh because all I could think about is, I thought about two things. One is that I remember um, Chad Spann, um, former running back who, who played in the CFL and numerous teams in the NFL, he said by far the Steelers was the best organization that he was a part of. Um, even though he was basically on their practice squad for most of the time that he was there, but he just said, he said it felt like he was with the football team, a football team that he envisioned what an NFL football team would be like in terms of how they met him, who, who, you know, the, how the players greeted him, how the coaches greeted him, how they, you know, they kind of seemed to have a program of how they went about doing things, how he was got involved in that. Whereas with some teams like, if you're just a guy like at his status, I heard, um, I'm trying to remember his name, but he's Acho, Emmanuel Acho talking about them, you know, talking about moving on to different football teams and being afraid to ask an assistant coach a question about him, Asus, because he was a such a low draft capital pick that, that he was afraid that he was going to, you know, be treated poorly and make a bad impression by asking for help about something because he was such a low range guy. Whereas with the Steelers, it was like people wanted to know who he was. They took an active interest in anybody that they brought to the team. And it was just a very different scenario compared to another team that Acho went to. He talked about it with the Eagles, as an example, just across town or across the state. But yeah. like the other thing I think of that you mentioned is, it's just the analogy of like a restaurant. You know, if you're a foodie, you might think I'd want to go to this like high end fusion restaurant where the executive chef is like worked at all these, you know, at a Michelin star place. And now he's opened up his own and he's serving like this huge menu of things. And then at the end of the day, if they've made these switches and they don't have the good program in place to do all that, all the foods just like mediocre at best. Whereas, you, and then you're thinking, after you had that meal and spent all that money, I just want to go to five guys or your favorite burger joint, whichever one it is. I don't care. Yep. You know, you know, that does one thing and does it really well, or they do five things and they do it extraordinarily well. And it's like, and the people who are doing it, maybe they won't work, you know, at this, you know, foodie restaurant, you know, here, but they can make the hell out of a burger and some fries and some chili dogs, you know, yep. and the, and what they do is better than anything that they could summon in the same realm. So, I mean, you know, I'll give you one more example, yeah. just because we're talking about like how important sometimes that consistency is. One of the things, my, one of my good friends, his father worked at the 49ers. He worked at the 49ers and he said one of the unique things when Bill Walsh took over that they started doing is they videotaped the coaches in the position room teaching to their players. And when a new coach would have to come in, the first thing they would do is they'd give them the videotape of the prior coach at that position saying, this is how we want the position taught. So it's not like you bring in a new guy, and I've dealt with this both in the NFL and CFL, you bring in a coach and you say, okay, you have our old line, this is our playbook, and he goes and teaches it in a way that may not make sense. Whereas in Bill Walsh, you knew, if you were turning your running backs over, now Tom Rathman was there 99% of the time, but if you're turning it over, you know that Joe Smith is going to teach running backs the same way. So if you're coaching the offense, you know where that foot's going to be when the lead blocker is going somewhere. And when you know those things, and then you can translate that to telling your scouts, here are the traits we're looking for. Here's how the coach is going to coach it. Okay, so I know the coach is going to coach it in a way that I could bring in a guy who may not be reactionary intelligent. But my coach is going to teach it in a way that he's going to be able to handle it. And that continuity... I think people don't understand that, yes, it's great to have the best coach and the best GM in the NFL. We all want that. But you don't need the best and the best. If you have good and good and your owner is patient, you're going to develop a winning culture and you're going to get things moving in the right direction. But it's not going to happen in two years. It's going to take three or four or five years. 
that's one of the best examples of planting the seed of the coaching tree that was the 49ers and Bill Walsh that I have ever heard. You know, I mean, it's like a great it, how, example. How much sense it makes, right? Yes. Yeah, it makes unbelievable sense. And I'm just, because I'm listening, I'm going, you mean they other teams don't do that? Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course they don't. Other teams do now, but, but I will tell you, it's not the common. Like yeah. when I mention this to people, both in the NFL and in the CFL, they say, wait a second, what? You, they, they videotape the coaches in the meeting rooms to show how they coach. And they videotape them, I believe, on the field too, so that they can, and they didn't videotape each coach every day on the field, but they would focus here sure. and there so they would be able to tell a new coach. And especially now with the staff so big, you can have your quality control coach who you know is going to take over as that receiver coach at some point because that guy's going to get promoted. You can have him start learning. Here are the nuanced things we want you to say. Here's what we don't want you to say. Yeah. So there's huge value in that. And I think Bill Walsh, I know Bill Belichick is the greatest there's ever been, everybody says, but Bill Walsh does not get enough credit for the, the things he added to professional football that have led to so much winning. And this is so, and it, and it makes so much sense when you hear the stories also from players who talk about college coaching or even NFL coaching with position coaches, position coaches who, why would they, you know, some people, some fans might go, well, why do they need to, to do that? Don't these guys know, aren't they qualified? And the answer is they might be great coaches in terms of working with certain head coaches. They may be trusted individuals to execute what the coach, what coaches ask them to do. The things that, that make you a good worker doesn't necessarily make you a great expert in a specific area of the field. So when you're talking, you know, I think of, you know, our mutual friend, Ryan Riddle telling me a story about when he came to Cal and, and how, you know, his defensive line coach was a wide receiver, former wide receiver, you know, and, and Cal had a terrific defense when Ryan was there, he said, but they had to get over a hump. And one of the humps Ryan said was that there was a bit of a conflict between him and his lineman teammates and the coach, because the coach wanted things taught a certain way and they wanted them to execute the scheme a certain way. And Ryan and two other players were much more intuitive type of players who could react to things with outside the box a little bit better and and they were kind of grousing privately about it and then ryan being the type of guy that ryan always was who's a kind of a question asker and a and a curious guy um and not willing not afraid to 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 ask he told the coach why couldn't is it possible we can do this and he said the coach's first reaction was well you know no because i want you to do this and and Ryan being younger, but, you know, being a cow guy, a lot of cow guys are pretty smart, you know, and think about things from a broader perspective. He thought, my coach is a new coach, new position coach. He's worried about keeping his job. Oh, so, yeah. so he approached it from a different perspective, which was like, listen, coach, I understand that, you know, you want us to do it this way, but I know that we can get results doing it this way. Can we at least try this? And he, and and do it in this fashion and appeal to the coach's sense without putting making the coach feel insecure about the situation or challenging the coach and the coach said and the coach's response was listen you know yeah fine if you guys can <laughs> give it a shot but if it doesn't work we're going back to this way and ryan says i understand and it worked great and and of course ryan the became yeah, the rest is history you know and they had a very strong defense and you, but I've heard this over and over again, even from another RSP contributor, David Agono, who was with West Virginia as a defensive back, and talking about that, you know, they teach the scheme so much, and a lot of the guys who are teaching aren't experienced on that level. They're good coaches in terms of how to coach, but maybe not the the actual information level of of how to teach certain skill sets. You know, they're not, yep. you know, they're not specialists in an area. Sometimes some guys are, some guys aren't. And then well, they I, can I, become it, that. It makes me think of when the Rams brought in Jared Goff because Jeff Fisher was the head coach. I believe the offensive coordinator was like a former O-lineman or something. And the position coach actually had never played quarterback. Yeah. So two of his three coaches had never even played the position and not that Goff became a hall of famer, 
But once they left and you brought in Sean McVay, and I don't even remember who the coordinator and the quarterback coach were, but all had played quarterback at the college level. Yeah. And it really does. Now, I'm not saying a guy can't make the transition, coach another position, but he has to do a deep dive if he's going to. You can't just, between one season to the next, go from coaching receivers your whole life and all of a sudden, oops, we're going to make you the tight ends coach or we're going to make you the DB coach. No, you can do it, but it's a process. Yeah. And you have to really get into the nitty gritty. And I do think there is something to have played the position because it does help you understand, especially in-game adjustments, things that are going to go on around you, especially for a quarterback, having those guys to be able to go back and say, you know, I saw this flash and, and McVay or whoever the OC can be. Yeah, yeah, that, that was his helmet as he was dropping here. That's why you probably got confused. And we're, yeah, we understand mistakes that can lead to mistakes. Whereas the other coach may say, well, you got to know you did players going here and this and that. Whereas a quarterback will understand that you're looking at helmets. Yeah. You're not seeing whole bodies. You're only seeing helmets. And if a flash goes, that's going to cause you to think he's covered and make you go to a different read. That, so, no, yeah, that's a, it's a fantastic point. So let's round this out with a, with a conversation just about some of the 2022 rookie class prospects who are, who are entering training camps within a couple of weeks or three weeks, I guess, from now. Um, who are some guys that stand out to you that you're just interested in, whether it's because you're, you're, you were high on them in the draft and, and the dra their draft capital either was validated what you thought or they're a little lower than where you thought, but you're interested to see how they climb or whether they intrigue you from one end or the other, whether you think that, you know, you're optimistic or pessimistic in some way, but maybe <laughs> the fit is interesting. Um, and it's, and it makes it a compelling watch for you. Who are guys you're kind of monitoring? Well, firstly, there are two guys that are draft picks. The rest of them are actually undrafted guys, but the two drafted to me, Chris Olave to me is the, well, the to me may be the single most interesting guy in the draft because I think if you went back in October of a year ago and asked people who's the best receiver in the country or, or going to be the first receiver, everybody, oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. No question. But as the process unfolded and testing happened and workouts happened, all of a sudden people said, well, he's a good athlete. This guy's a better athlete. He's a more explosive. He's an explosive player. This guy's more explosive. All these things. And all of a sudden people are, a lot of they sort of sliding. And it's like, wait a second. You're actually telling me as a teammate on this team you think is a better receiver than this guy? It's like, have you watched Ohio State? There was one receiver above all else to me. Now, me too. Maybe, maybe me I'm not, too. No, maybe me Wilson too. goes on to become a 12-time pro bowler and who knows. But I'm very interested to see Alavi because his polish, and I, and I don't know what term you use for it. I call it route integrity in terms of they maintain to the break point. Yeah. His ability to hide that route until he puts a foot in the ground is rare. Yeah. His ability to get his head and hands around to catch that ball that's right on top of him quickly. And just his ability, he, is, he doesn't look thick. He looks trim, but he plays strong. Yeah. And I, I just, I really want to say, okay, was what I saw as a potentially the NFL receiver legitimate? Or is there a legitimate reason that other guys passed him and went higher that I do not see. I'm 1,000% on board with that that idea with Chris Olave. Um, I thought he was easily the best receiver in this class. Um, he reminded me of Chad Johnson in, in, in a lot of the ways that you described everything um, with him. And he's he has unbelievable tracking um, in a way that it's kind of hidden. It's a subtle tracking. He can track... There, there are players who will track a ball and they they know when to catch it at its earliest point, but he also knows based on the coverage. I've seen him assess the coverage on a deeper route in the middle of the field and realize that he's going to have to wait till the latest point to track that ball. And it was an intentional thing. It wasn't, you know. So on top of that, he reminds me, it's almost like this, to me it was like the Robert Woods, Marquise Lee thing at USC that – you know, Garrett Wilson and Marquis Lee was a good prospect injuries. You know, he had some things where he wasn't as disciplined of a technician um, conceptually and technically in terms of a receiver, but he was a terrific athlete who could catch the ball and make big plays. Um, but he was one of those guys that, you know, you, and these are things they can learn, but you think of thing obstacles to entry 
barriers to entry with players. The, a big barrier to entry with Marquise Lee was he was one of those guys that was so athletic that he got away with losing five yards in an attempt to try and gain 70 and wind up with only a two-yard gain after the catch. And, and, and Garrett Wilson is completely like that as a player um, rather than just turning it straight up field. He also looks like he's doing math trying to catch the ball sometimes. Now, he always seems to come up... He often seems to come up with the right answer, but it looked like he was doing some work. Like, I actually caught this, you know, in in the situations that he was doing. And in the NFL, that's just not going to fly as well. Whereas with Olave, just easy hands, easy ability to track, you know, as you mentioned with the routes and just versatile in that perspective. So when I saw him go to the Saints, while it's not Sean, Sean Payton's Saints, I thought with, you know, Michael Thomas there, even if Thomas isn't fully healthy with Thomas and Landry there as guys that he can work with. I just thought that was an unbelievable landing spot. So I'm oh, totally with not. you. Who else, who else jumps off to you? Well, the, the, the other one is the one we debated a lot, which is I, I can't wait to see Malik Willis because I know that most of it is going to probably be preseason because yeah. obviously Tannehill's the starter, but I have the feeling because he's so athletic. And from what I know of him as a kid, from the people I've spoken to, he's such a great kid that I think they're going to devise some packages for him this season yeah. because he can do things. We both had issues, I think, some of the things when you watch them in terms of sort of pocket awareness, consistency, and whatever. But I think we also both agree he, when he does things right, he can be spectacular. Yes. And he's, he's an athlete unlike few in the world playing quarterback. Yeah. So there's going to be packages. So I can't wait to see, A, what does he do in the preseason when he does everything on offense to see how he's developed this offseason. It's probably going to be a big jump. There's going to be some inconsistency. But also during the year, what do they try to use him? What type of packages? And what do we get a chance to see? Because, like I said, the character, the intangibles, they're all supposed to be outstanding from everybody I've spoken to. And I think if you took his 20 best plays from 2021 – they'd be on par with any quarterback in the whole country because when he did things right, wow, was he unbelievable. So I can't wait to see how, what he shows in the NFL. I think there's a chance for him to really show some neat thing, unique things, whether that leads to him becoming a good starter. That's a whole nother question, Sure, but I'm definitely excited to see what he shows this year. I agree. A guy for me uh, on this end is, Isaiah Pacheco, the running back out of Rutgers. Rutgers, yeah. Um, and he's with Andy Reid. And Andy Reid is pretty well known for taking chances on running backs who are late-round guys and and free agents that came over from another, um, you know, came over from another team that got cut and finding guys on the waiver wire. And, listen, I, I like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, but I always saw him as more of a Mike Hart Emmett Smith starter pack, like as a as a guy who didn't have that high end skill, I saw more as a great a great receiver, good route runner, someone who ran tough, but I didn't like the 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 contact balance power aspect between the tackles or the red zone skills from his perspective. But at that when I look at and with this team, you've got Ronald Jones, who's a hard runner, fast guy. Um, not not a not great in the passing game. You've got McKinnon, who's good in the passing game, but the opposite, you know, from from Jones. And when I look at Pacheco, he reminded me a little bit of Cam Akers, of a guy who could catch the ball extraordinarily well, tracks the ball well, has excellent burst and speed. And while you know there are a lot of people that said, well, he doesn't have great decision making. He he seemed to run into his own blockers. He seemed to have some issues there. What I what I saw a lot at Rutgers, and we'll see if it works out. If if this was a true assessment, was that Isaiah Pacheco could have, I could imagine him literally having an image of a head of his head looking at his wristwatch while waiting for a guard to pull around. And you and when you are running gap plays and your blockers can't get to their spots on time, you're going to run into your blockers. I'm sorry. No and and so you have to have some forgive you have to have a little forgiveness of that and i thought that there were times that he just made decisions like a lot of running backs do which is i've got to get some yards and here's an opportunity i'm going to hit this hard i'm i'm going to forego my blockers because i've it's already been three times in the first quarter that i've been stuffed in the backfield because i waited 
and and now I'm I forget it. It ain't working. I know it's not. I'm not going to keep banging my head against the wall. So to me, that was an example of intel wisdom wisdom over just like doing the same thing over and over again. So we'll see if that works out that way. Yeah, and he's an interesting guy because when I saw him live, I saw a lot of the traits you saw. The one thing I saw is he had a tendency at times he would get upright. And yes. when he get upright, he wasn't as smooth trying to change directions. You saw a little stiffness, whereas when he would keep the knees bent, you could see a little bit more ability to subtly change direction. So I'm interested to see, can, can they get him to, hey, when you're running, you got to play with that bend because as soon as you're up, you're not the same running back. Yeah, without a doubt. That's a great point. So yeah. I'm going to throw one other guy at you. I, I don't know if you looked at him, even though he is a skill position guy, but he was an undrafted guy, had a cow named Jake Tongas, a tight end. Ah, and I no. started watching film of him just because, although we don't use a tight end in the CFL, I'm always looking at, hey, is there, I look at every tight end that's undrafted just saying, is there a chance he could be a slacker? Can he run well enough? And I put the film on and I thought, there's got to be something I don't know. And I have not done the research with the character yet or intelligence to find out there's got to be a reason this guy didn't get drafted. Because when I started watching clips of him, this guy was catching balls and making plays down the field like a guy that normally would be a, a, a mid to late round pick in the NFL. And he was athletic. He could run with the ball. I'm not sure what it is that got him undrafted. And I haven't done that research yet, but I can't wait to see him in the preseason. I think this is a kid who could, could surprise a lot of people. Athletic kid, natural hands, physical, tough runner with the ball. So I can't wait to take a peek at this guy. I have no idea if this is a guy you even peeked at when you were doing your stuff. But he's very intriguing. I'm, I'm going to have to keep an eye out for him. I have not. The guy who was at Cal early in his career, who's a skilled player, who's with the Ravens now and played at Mississippi State, is Makai Polk, a wide receiver who's 6'3", 195, and he's not a game-breaker. He's not very imposing physically, but I just thought he was that guy who could play that flanker slot role, kind of like Stevie Johnson did back for the Bills. Oh, he Bills, has that, yeah. you know, he has some of that route-running ability that really works well in zones. He's tough and um, at the point of contact. Um, he's just one of those guys that, I could see him having a career that ends up being longer than a lot of the names who were ahead of him. Even if he's never a star, I could see him being that guy, especially with the Ravens that play, they, they throw the ball in the middle of the field. They need a guy like that. I think he could take over and maybe that Snead, that Willie Sneed type of thing that Sneed had for a, a short period of time, but maybe be a little more than that. Um, whereas Sneed was strictly more of a slot guy. I think Pope, can be a little bit more. Um, so he was fascinating to me. Um, and then, you know, uh, I would say if I was going to, yeah, I, I, there's, you know, Jalen Naylor out of Michigan State's interesting to me, and he's supposedly yep. having a good camp. You know, he's a very quick slot guy, um, has a good sense of, a, you know, in terms of versatility, um, you know, good after the catch. He kind of reminds me of, like, not as good as De Deontay Johnson, but maybe a little bit on the Andre Roberts scale of things. Um, maybe he can deliver like that. And then just a total shot in the dark player who I just really liked is Kwame Lassiter, the uh, second out of Kansas. I just, I liked this kid. Um, high effort, all phases of the game, sneaky fast, sneaky good, good motor. Four, five, two, you know, not unbelievably fast, but I mean, Marvin Jones kind of ran in that. That's yeah, fear. Nothing wrong with that. You know, nothing wrong with that at all. So if he can, uh, he was an undrafted free agent. Obviously, his dad, you know, his, his late father, you yeah. know, molded a career in that same track. And, and Kwame, I watched him do some good work against some Texas cornerbacks and thought, this kid's got a little something here. Um, let's see if he can be like an Antoine Randall L type of player, maybe a little bit. We'll see. Well, I got, I, I'll give you two other okay. names. So there's a kid named Benton Whitley, a defensive end at a Holy Cross. I saw this kid at the NFLPA game. He jumped off the film or the field. And then I went and watched the film. And it was he was a dominant small school player at Holy Cross. Um, as with most Holy Cross kids, he's a high character, highly intelligent, all the great intangibles. He's a guy I think athletically he's going to end up in the NFL for three or four years, if only as a PR guy, just to see if the light goes on and he can become 
make that transition because there's a lot of talent. And this other kid, I, I think you pro- you may have looked at him. He was a slot guy and a returner at Arizona named Stanley Berryhill. Atlanta. Yeah, this kid's really interesting to me because he's got some legit twitch. Yeah. Like when he hits it, he can go. And I didn't see a ton of film. I saw about two games, and I saw him live at an All-Star game. And I thought, there's something with this kid. More, I thought that if I think he's that type of guy that he almost gets stuck. Where does he fit in the NFL? Is he a guy that can do a few things well but isn't good enough to make it? I don't know. But I really want to see how good he can be at the top level because in our league, I think he would be a superstar. See, I love this. And this is what's so much fun is that, you know, you know, with with certain places, you know, if you have sponsors, you know, they don't want to hear you talk about these guys. But you can tell we're <laughs> just geeking out about the guys who are like on the edges of these rosters. But when you have a sponsor like the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, that's what you would expect because we want to go deep with all this stuff. <laughs> so, again, you know, on behalf of Russ Landy, um, you know, I'm Mount Waldman. We appreciate you listening. You can subscribe to this podcast at pretty much any outlet that you get podcasts from. Um, Mount Waldman's RSP cast. And we're going to be doing more of this again. Of course, you can get your rookie scouting portfolio, pre-draft, post-draft guides, or your projection service. They're available at mountwaldman.com. Once again, on behalf of Russ and I, thank you for listening. Have a great week.